Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. God speaks to us today uh, from 2 Timothy 4 and Acts 28. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Damas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tachias to emphasis. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Capras at Troas and the scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God for killing it with all those names. Well done. Uh, So the 90s, they produced uh, some of the greatest movies ever. And one of the the best, uh, one of our favorites, was a movie called What About Bob? And What About Bob, there is uh, a character, Sigmund, uh, who's the son of a psychiatrist. uh, And he is reflecting on the... Uh, the realities of coming death with Bob. And he says this, Sigmund, this, I forget how old he is. Let's say he's 12. He says, there's no way out of it. You're going to die. I'm going to die. It's going to happen. And there is some truth to that, isn't it? Isn't there? I mean, there's no escaping truth. Our time will come. The end is always before us. And knowing that that's true, it's important to note that there is a perspective on life that one can have when looking back on a life lived retrospectively. There's this unique ability that we will have to look at the circumstances of our past with some clarity when we're able to look at it from some distance. Now, if you've been with us uh, over the course of our series, we've been in the book of Acts looking at uh, how God was uh, 
building his church, the early church, and the ways that he was doing extraordinary things through very ordinary means. Uh, And today is actually the final week of our series. Uh, And what we have today is we have the opportunity to hear from a man who is facing death. Now, the book of Acts, uh, which again chronicles the growth of the early church, is a book that's focused a lot of attention on the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now, we're currently in uh, Acts 28, chapter 28, but pretty much since chapter 9, Paul has received uh, a lot of airplay over the course of this narrative. I mean, he was a man who had dedicated his life to preaching and to church planting, and here we have him facing the end. Leading up to Acts 28, Paul has been through it. Uh, He's been preaching And he's met some fierce resistance from his own Jewish people for his message. He said mobs try to kill him. He had leaders trying to kill him. Uh, On a couple of occasions, he actually had to be rescued by the Roman military. He is eventually uh, brought on trial before Roman officials. Uh, And through a series of events, Paul eventually appeals uh, some of these, uh, these trials to Caesar's court. Uh, much, it would be much like appealing to higher courts in our own society. In essence, he's requesting to go before the Supreme Court of the land. And all along the way, he's experienced all kinds of issues and problems. He survives a shipwreck. Uh, after he survives a ship, shipwreck, he's then uh, bitten by a poisonous snake. And now, here in Acts 28, Paul is in Rome and he's under house arrest. In fact, he's been imprisoned two different times. Now, this other passage that you see here from 1 Timothy, uh, this may seem unrelated to our, our series in Acts, but in essence, Paul's, what we're seeing in 1 Timothy is Paul's reflections during his time of imprisonment. In 1 Timothy, uh, it's a letter that he wrote to Timothy, the pastor of the church of Ephesus, which is the church that we looked at last week. Uh, if you remember, Paul was encouraging the pastors and the elders in Ephesus, back in Acts 20, and his letter to Timothy continues that encouragement. Paul knows that the end is near for him, and so there's certain things that he wants to communicate to Timothy. And in his words in 1 Timothy, there's a reflection on the journey that he's been on. It's been an extraordinary journey, but it's also been a very common one as well. And I want us to see how it's actually very close to the kinds of journeys that we experience. And this week, as we close out the series, I want to take a look at Paul's reflections. And I want to learn how we can see the significance of our own extraordinary journey. And I want to do that by looking at how Paul reflects on his past, on his present, and his future. Okay? So first, let's consider Paul's past. Uh, One of the interesting realities of this passage uh, is Paul's honesty about his experiences. He's talking about uh, Demas, who betrayed him. He's talking about Alexander, the metal worker, who did him great harm. And as Paul says, he says that the Lord will repay him. And then in verse 16, he speaks about how everyone has abandoned him. The only person that's really remained with him has been Luke. So as he remembers these things about his past... Uh, And there's probably much more that he could have named. We know, actually, that Paul could have said a lot more that has come across his way, both good and bad. But here's what's interesting. In verse 17, 
after thinking about all these difficult times, he says, but the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength so that through the message, I'm sorry, through me, the message might be fully proclaimed. It's interesting to me that Paul was able to acknowledge that the Lord was with him through it all. Now, that might sound like an expected reflection from an apostle, right, an early church father, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's not actually often considered what that actually means. It's, it's, it sounds like something a good Christian would say, but consider what he's actually saying. There's something unique about being able to look at the past, a past that is fraught with pain and hardship and abuse and a lie and lies and abandonment and a host of other struggles, and in the end, still say, but the Lord stood at my side. I mean, why? Why would one look at the past and say that? You know, one of the most famous and uh, often misquoted verses of the Bible uh, is Romans 8, 28. Um, we reference eight, uh, Romans 8 and Romans 9 a lot. Good Presbyterians love those two chapters of the Bible. But this is what Romans eight twenty eight says. Let me remind us. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That God works all things Here's what, here's what trips me up about that. I mean, consider what all things means. I mean, really, all things. Maybe, those of you that are hearing me now, you can think of some pretty awful things. You know, as a pastor, I've walked with people through and talked to people about and even experienced my own things. And knowing some of those things... I wonder, how does one look at such things and say, the Lord stood at my side? I mean, that's heavy. Because for some, that feels impossible or incomprehensible. If he was by my side, why didn't he intervene in these things? I mean, that's a powerful, real, vivid question for many. And there is really only one answer that I can give to that question. The answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, as I think about my own life, there have been some extraordinarily painful moments. And when I look back on them now with some distance, I can see what the Lord was doing through those hardships. But I also know that there are some moments for me and for many of you where, there, where it is much harder to see why? It's much harder to see how God could have been by my side during those things. You know, C.S. Lewis, of course, the well-known author and Christian apologist, he lost his wife to cancer. Uh, and after she died, he wrote uh, a bo brief booklet book called A Grief Observed. And I want to read to you an extended quote uh, from him, from that book because I think it will resonate a lot with people. He said this. He said, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy, 
that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of a bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more empathetic the silence will become. Emphatic, excuse me, emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It may be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seems so. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? I mean, does that question resonate with anyone? Why is he so present a commander in our times of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? I mean, does that kind of question sound familiar to you? I mean, how does one take the perspective of Paul to look back on terrible circumstances and see the Lord there? When so many others, including many of us here, don't experience that, we experience something more along the lines of C.S. Lewis's question, why are you absent? Why have you been absent in my time of need? How does one reconcile the things that we say that we believe about God, about him being an ever-present help, ever help in our time of need, and yet in reality, so often feel his absence? I'm not going to answer that question for you right now, because that's Paul's past. But I also want to take a look at Paul's present uh, life has led him to a really tough place, right? So not only has he experienced painful circumstances in the past, he's currently experiencing them in the moment as we're reading this, right? He's, as I said, he's under house arrest, he's imprisoned. And as we've said, he's had a lot of people abandon him. And he says all of this, uh, about all of this, he says, I, have already, uh, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Right? So in his present, he evaluates his circumstances, circumstances that are not ideal by any means, not likely what he would have scripted for his life, and yet he is confident that he is exactly where he should be. I find that intriguing. I find it intriguing that he doesn't say, my departure is near, and, you know, maybe I messed up. You know, maybe I shouldn't have chosen this path of life. Maybe I should have just stayed a tent maker. Maybe I should have just settled down. Maybe I should have never left the church in Ephesus. No. He says, listen, my, my end is near. And I fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I am facing death, and yet I am still exactly where I ought to be. You can hear the confidence. And I do wonder, do we have that level of confidence in our present there are probably a lot of different things in the past that have led us to our current present. 
that maybe as we think back, there's a lot that we regret. We wish we would have done differently that wouldn't have brought us to the current place that we're in. We wish that other people hadn't done things to us that have brought us to the place that we're currently in. But have you considered that regardless of the circumstances you find yourselves in right now, that maybe, just maybe, that there, there might be a confidence to know that the Lord did not only stand at my side in the past, but also that he could be standing by my side even right now, in the moment, in the present, no matter the circumstances. Even though my current circumstances are not ideal, much like Paul's weren't, maybe they're even downright terrible, that there might be something that God is doing in the moment that I do not know and that I cannot see. I mean, the Bible is full of people who found themselves in terrible situations. People who in their present were terribly disoriented by their circumstances. I mean, the entire book of Job, for example, is about a man who lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his wealth, he lost his health. And of course, that leaves him searching for answers. And in fact, in 38 chapters of the book of Job, it's just him searching and processing things with his friends, trying to find answers for why God brought him to this place. And only after 38 chapters do we then hear God respond. But in the end, God even then doesn't give him any real answers as to why he suffered. We have passages like Psalm 22 where King David is feeling abandoned before his enemies and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, those words being words that Jesus would cry out himself on the cross. Another great example is in Genesis 37 through 50, you have the story of Joseph. Joseph was constantly finding himself in, himself in situations that would have absolutely left anyone baffled at where God was in the present I mean, he was abused by his brothers and eventually sold into slavery by them. Then his master's wife lied uh, and said that Joseph attempted to essentially sexually assault her, uh, when in reality, he was actually the one who had resisted her sexual advances. But because of the lie, he ends up in prison for many years. Now, if you know the story, you know that eventually he would become uh, essentially the prime minister of Egypt, where he had been uh, uh, in slavery. He would become, he would rise up and have this life that he otherwise never would have had except for these experiences that he had. But here's what's interesting to me. Joseph's response to all of this really gets at the heart of what we're talking about. So at the very end of Genesis, Joseph is before his brothers. His brothers are really the ones that had kind of set off this whole chain of events that created a lot of turmoil for him. And this is what he says to them, right? They're before him. He's rose to power. They're coming to him because they're in need of food. And so his response to them is, as, um, as they were processing what they'd done to him, he says, you intended to harm me. Another translation says, what you meant for evil, God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I mean, isn't that an interesting response? I mean, that's very much in line with what we said about Romans 8.28, isn't it? That there is some good that God intends, even through difficult, hard times. But of course, the problem is 
Now, if we are left in the same situation when we're considering the past, we also need to consider, what is God doing? If, if he's claiming to be by my side, even in the present, if, God, if I hear that God intends for good for me, when I look at my past and when I look at my present, I cannot see how he could possibly be standing by my side. Right? I hear that God desires good things for me, and yet the only thing that seems to resonate for me is the question of C.S. Lewis, why is he present, a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent in our time of troubles? I mean, some of you have experienced that in the past. Some of you are experiencing that right now in your present. It's hard to see what he's doing. It's hard to see any good that could come from it. But friends, let me tell you this. We will never make sense of the past, nor will we ever make sense of our present, unless we begin to make sense of the future. The only way we will, able to, we will be able to fully see God by our side is to not just look at what's going on now, but to see what God's doing into the future. Lewis, of course, he asks that, that question that resonates with many of us. Where is God? Why is he absent in our time of need? Uh, he felt a lot like he was knocking on a door and getting no answer, though it seemed like someone is home. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you ring someone's bell, you know they're in there, and yet no one comes to the door. But later in the book, Lewis reflects on uh, the very questions that he's been asking. Right? He's been coming before God with all of these questions, and in the conclusion of his book, this is what he says. Again, I want to give you a little bit of an extended quote because I think it's helpful. He says, when I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but a rather special sort of no answer. It is not the locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in a refusal by waving the question, like, peace, child, you don't understand. Can a mortal ask questions which God finds unanswerable? Quite easily, I should think. All nonsense questions are unanswerable. How many hours are there in a mile? Is yellow square or round? Probably half the questions we ask, half of our great theological and metaphysical problems are like that. And now that I come to think of it, there's no practical problem before me at all. I know the two commandments and I'd better get on with them. I mean, essentially, this is what he's saying. He says, listen, when I ask questions before God, a God of all power, all knowledge, all authority, I assume that my questions make sense. And yet here we have Lewis saying, probably more often than not, the questions that I'm asking are nonsensical and even irrelevant if I only knew what God knew. You know, that's, the kind, of, uh, that's kind of how the book of Job ends. You know, after dozens of chapters of questioning and wrestling with heartache and pain, God's response to Job in chapter 38, going back and rereading it again, it gives me shivers every time I read it. Let me just read you one little snippet, right? So put yourself into Job's place. He's lost everything. Tragedy has been around him in ways that many of us maybe not, may not even be able to fully comprehend. This is God's response to Job's questions. He says, God says, brace yourself like a man. 
I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. The whole chapter is basically that kind of thing. God putting before Job his power, his authority, to make clear to Job that God is supreme in ways and in knowledge which are far beyond what we could possibly comprehend. And in some sense, when we bring our questions before God, it's, it's a lot like that. It's a lot like what Lewis is saying. Like, your questions don't even make sense. You have no real knowledge about such things. And so in one sense, yeah, that's, that's where God, that's where God is in all of this. But what kind of God only gives those kinds of answers? Frankly, if the only kinds of answers we ever got were Job 38, we'd have a pretty unloving, uncompassionate, seemingly vindictive kind of God who will allow us to suffer and never give us any kind of hope beyond that suffering. I mean, what kind of God in the midst of our suffering and our hardship leaves us feeling belittled and even ignored? Well, I don't know what kind of God that would be, but that's not the God of the Bible. And this is why I love the way that Lewis ends his quote. If you remember back when, the way he ends it is he says, listen, I don't know a whole lot of things, and I ask a lot of nonsensical questions. What I do know is that I have been given two great commandments, and I'd better get on with that. In other words, God has told me some things. He's already made some things clear to me, and those things are the things that I should consider and focus on. Because those things that he's presented to us already actually give answers to the questions that I have. There are reasons for my past and my present. There is hope that can be found, but it must be through the answers that God has already given to us. Now, the Apostle Paul is able to look back on his past and his experiences. He's able to look at the hardship of what's going on in his present because he is clinging to the hope of a particular future that God has already communicated to him. I mean, look at verse 18. So after reflecting on his past and the betrayal that he's experienced, Paul says that the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safety to his, safely to his heavenly kingdom. Then in verse 8, after reflecting on the hardship of the present reality and the fact that he's facing death, verse 8 says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to those who have longed for his appearing. And then I referenced Romans 8.28 a little while ago that all things work together for good. We actually can't understand that verse, though, unless we consider the words that follow it in verses 29 and 30. It says this, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. I mean, do you see what is happening In all three of those passages, Paul's ability to have hope in the midst of a broken past and a difficult present is that in the end, long term, there is glory in store for those who trust in Jesus. 
Here is what I find to be most pressing about all of this. If we do not see the hope presented in Christ, all of our questions will leave us longing and wanting for answers that we may never get. The questions we ask God, especially in relation to the past and the present, often are just the wrong questions. Meaning we might very well want particular questions answered by God in particular ways right now. But we could spend a lifetime seeking those answers and all the while miss the hope that comes with the answers that we've already been given. And I find that so often people desire to jettison God from the equation Jettison God from their life because the suffering doesn't seem to make sense. And so in some sense, to get rid of God would alleviate some of these difficult questions about what God is doing and why he would allow certain things to happen. But rather, instead of doing that, taking God out of the, the equation actually creates more problematic ones, doesn't it? I mean, without God's intentional purposes, our suffering and our pain equates to meaninglessness. But with the Lord, though we might not get the answers that we want or expect, we are given hope. Why? Why is there hope? There's hope because we know that though we might not get all the answers we want, we do know that God cared so deeply about our sin, about the sins of others, about sickness and brokenness and injustice and death that he sent his son I mean, on the cross, Jesus bears the weight of the ultimate consequences of sin and its effects. He took death upon himself. You know, you feel lost about injustices that you've suffered, the deaths that you've experienced, that you've experienced the betrayal that seems to ever be before you. God knows. He sees them and he cared enough to send his son to ensure that the power of, of such depravity is defeated. And Jesus not only goes to the cross, but we also know that in the resurrection, he proves that power to be present. He proves that the power that brings these kinds of depravities into our lives is defeated. He proves what Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us, that God gives us a hope and a future. I mean, Jesus is that hope and future. I know that verse... Jeremiah 29, 11, only makes, a sense, it only makes sense in, in light of Romans 8, that the future ultimately being the glory of God made manifest to us through the work of Jesus that ushers us, that brings us into that glory. The glory of a restored creation that is without sickness or death or injustice. Now, I cannot guarantee that you will get answers to your questions on this side of glory. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture to guess that most of the questions that you have, especially as they relate to pain and suffering, you probably won't get the kinds of answers that you want. But I can guarantee that as you look to Jesus, the one who proves that God is not distant or apathetic to your plight, that you will experience hope, that he is working for the good of those who love him, and that one day you will realize all along, even in, through painful circumstances in the past, painful circumstances in the present, that the Lord was at your side, giving you strength to persevere.
And so I encourage you, regardless of where you might find yourself right now, to look on Jesus. For it's Jesus that proves the care and concern and compassion and love of God. I pray that that gives you hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your Son. We thank you for what we have experienced, what we can experience as we trust in him. Lord, I know that for many, as they look upon their past and as they look upon their present, they feel disoriented, they feel angry. Like Lewis, they feel like you are just not that ever-present help in time of need that you promised you would be. And God, I resonate so much with that. But Lord, would you give them eyes to see beyond the pain of the present, beyond the circumstances of the past. Give them eyes to see a future, one that is full of hope and joy, a future that is marked by the restoration of all things, a hope that was uh, accomplished, a future that was accomplished out of your love through the work of your Son. Lord, would you work that in us? Would your spirit work that deep in us that though we suffer and though this world can be painful, we can have a confidence to know that you have stood by our side, that you have given us strength and that you are working all things for the good of those who love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.